Well, I'm going to be uh, taking off in about two minutes to go down to Plymouth, and I'm preaching down at New Hope Chapel in Plymouth. Uh, remember, Neil Eaton came and preached here. I'm going to go preach there. So Mark's going to preach for me. So it's like musical pastors. We sort of go around and around. And uh, anyway, uh, for those of you, uh, most of you know Mark Jennings. Uh, he probably doesn't even need an introduction. But for those of you who may be new to our church and don't know Mark, uh, Mark, uh, when I was on sabbatical last summer, he uh, preached uh, for the majority of the sabbatical. So most of you have enjoyed his ministry. Uh, he is now in Marquette University. And they're living in Wheaton, Illinois. He and his wife, Kim, and their two uh, sons. And Mark's working on his Ph.D. in New Testament at Marquette. Uh, Mark is uh, also my best friend in the whole world. So we've just been having a great time hanging out. Gosh, shucks. And uh, so, you know, uh, this weekend, it's, it's going to be like a no-sleep weekend. So we're just hanging out, having a great time together and uh, enjoying each other. And the other thing you have to know about Mark is he really, he really is my understudy. He's... Um, uh, he, you know, you, you, you know. If, one of the things he really likes is if you call him a little Jeremy. Yeah. He loves that. Yeah. You know, especially little Jeremy. He loves it. So anyway, uh, man, it's great to have you back. And uh, I'm not going to be in the front row like I've giving you signs. <laughs> so anyway, man, thank you. God bless you. And uh, you're in good hands. So adios. I had, I had told Jeremy that I was I'm fairly anal attentive on time, and I was conscious that my sermon. Kids, only kids, out by the piano. I told him I was conscious on time. I'm anal attentive that way, and so I wanted no introduction. And he took about four minutes. So there we go. Now, I know what some of you were thinking. I do. You came in this morning. You, you, you saw me down front, and your, your first thought was, oh, this, anybody, are we good? Hello? Move this up. Better? Better? Is this one better? Yes? No? Are we good? Those of you who can't hear me are saying yes, you're good. <laughs> I do, though. I, I, I know what you were thinking. You came in, you saw me down here, and you thought, Ah, oh, Mark's visiting. And then you noticed I was staying down front. And then you started to realize it was going to be one of those Sundays. <laughs> Guest Speaker Sunday. And you were sort of hoping they would advertise that a week in advance. Right? I know, I've, I've been where you are. Of course, by then, you're caught. You're stuck. You've been seen. You can't sneak out. Societal pressures like an avalanche just weigh you down to that pew. So, so here we are. You know, I love this church. I love it. It felt, felt like home coming in. I love the fact that when, when you come to a place, there are certain things you can count on. You know, as we flew into Boston, we could count on traffic, right? You could count on that. 
You can count on the Patriots being in the playoffs. You can count on most of our wives having crushes on Tom Brady. Right? I mean, there are things you can count on. With this church, I can pretty much count on you guys are going to be in Luke. Right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain at the end of this study you will have qualified for seminary credit. <laughs> but more importantly, I can count on that this is a group that feels like family. And the reason it feels like family is you love the Lord. And you love Scripture. And sadly, that is becoming a rare thing among groups that call themselves churches. That you love the Word of God. And that is a wondrous thing. And that makes it feel like home. As we prepare today to look at what the good Dr. Luke has for us, let's just take a moment to pray and prepare our hearts. Lord God, today is a good day. Today is a great day. Lord, for today it's another day where you are pleased to have us gather together to worship you. Lord, today is a good day. Today is another day where we are able to open up your word to hear you speak. Lord, today is a good day. Today is another day where the, the call is still out there for those who have not accepted your wondrous sacrifice, who have not accepted you as Lord and Savior. Lord, that call, that invitation is still open. Today is a good day. Lord, today is a good day for those of us who are in your kingdom, for those of us who are your children, that, that we can continue to become more like you, to seek you. Today is a good day. And Lord, today... Today we are one day closer to that great day. To that day when you will come again in your glory. Oh, let that day be today. Lord, when the, this world, this evil age will pass away and we will just enjoy the wonders and treasures of heaven for eternity. Today is a good day. Holy Spirit, only you can open eyes and only you can open hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to understand. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be looking at today Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 18. Luke 18, starting with verse 18. Verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy. 
he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with human beings is possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. There's a lot in that text. There's issues of, of obedience. There's issues of giving to the poor. There's issues of the disciples giving up everything to follow. There's commandments. There's talks about treasures in heaven. But the elephant in that passage, right, the, the big thing in that pa- pa- passage is it's about wealth. Right? That's the sort of heavy-handed part of this passage. It's about money. And, you know, that's the, the great thing one of the, about preaching through a book. And your pastor, I think, is so wise to do it. These are the type of passages you sometimes would skip if you weren't preaching through a book, if you weren't made to talk about passages like this, if you weren't made to talk about uncomfortable things such as wealth and money. Now, typically when this uh, sermon is presented or this passage is talked about, there tend to be two camps. Those who do not have wealth often look at this passage and say, yeah, take it to the rich. Take it to their greediness. Let them know they need to be given their money. Let them know they need to be supporting. Those with wealth tend to look at this passage and say, let's not worry about the incidentals. Let's just focus on God, not really the details of the passage. Those in the middle tend to fall on either side depending on how their checkbook looks at that moment. We just got out of the holiday annual winter retail season. Um, We still call Christmas. And so chances are you're more in the latter than the former. So the question is, what do you do with this text? What do you talk about? How do you look at that? How do you present it? Well, let's begin by looking at what it really is. What we are really hearing. And it's a conversation. Luke is giving us a conversation that this man had with Jesus. So perhaps we should know a little bit more about this man. What do we know about him? Well, we know he's a ruler. Right? Obviously. We know he's a ruler. What does that mean? Well, in the Mediterranean world, that meant he was in the minority. That meant he was in a very small, one percentage, less than one percentage of the population, small group that had power, that had wealth, that had lands, that had influence. Small group. Part of the establishment. 
part of the powers that be. Which means we know he's wealthy. Luke tells us later on he's wealthy, but we almost really don't even need to know that. By knowing he's a ruler, we know he's wealthy. And in the first century Mediterranean world, wealth was kind of like land. They weren't really making any more of it. If you had wealth, that meant somebody else didn't. You had wealth at the expense of other people. So he was in this small group. What else do we know about him? Well, you might say he's young. Well, you'd be right, but you wouldn't get that from Luke. We get that from the other Gospels, that this man is young. Luke doesn't tell us he's young. In fact, a lot of times people say, oh, you're preaching on the rich young ruler. And I'm like, no, I'm actually preaching on the rich ruler. And I think it's only opinion, but I think the reason Luke doesn't tell us he's young is because he doesn't want anyone to mistake the decision this man makes with maturity or immaturity. Right? There's no excuse there. So he's young, but that's not something we need to know right now. What else do we know? Well, he's he's fairly upright man. He's a fairly moral man. When Jesus says to him, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, honor your mother and father, what does he say? I've done that. I've done that since I was a boy. And we have no reason not to believe him. Jesus doesn't present any reason not to believe him. We have no reason not to believe him. He's a fairly moral man. So we've got this rich man, this powerful man. He's fairly moral. He's also, I think, spiritually inclined. He is interested in his eternal state. He wants to know what he has to do, what is necessary for eternal life, what does have to be done to be saved. So he's spiritually inclined. And I think we also know he's courageous. I think I can safely say he's courageous. Remember, he's a member of the establishment. He's a member of that group that Jesus rails against throughout his ministry. Jesus rails against the powers that be. And he's a member of that group. Yet, what does this man do? He steps out and asks Jesus a question publicly. Right? Here's a moral man. Here's a spiritually inclined man concerned about his eternal destiny who has presumably just heard the story, the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Luke doesn't indicate there's been any change in time here. So he presumably has just heard that. He understands, I believe, that his, his morals aren't enough. He wants to know what else is necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. So he is courageous in that, so motivated, so motivated by what Jesus hears, even though Jesus is sort of the enemy of his group, he steps out and asks them a very sincere question. There's no indication here that this man is testing Jesus. There's no indication here that he's trying to trap him. We can't let how other powerful figures in the gospel are presented, we can't let that color the view of this man. We cannot label this guy some powerful stuffed shirt. In fact, if I was going to label him, I would use a term that's sort of in the evangelical vocabulary. I mean, how would you describe a person who, who is spiritually concerned, attracted by Jesus' teaching, doesn't think their morals are enough to get them into heaven, wants to know more, goes to Jesus to do that, even though it causes a great step of courage... How would you describe that man? A seeker, right? 
Isn't that what we're dealing with here? He's a seeker. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. This verse is one of those verses where those of us who get highfalutin degrees, who spend time in hermeneutics and dead languages and looking at context and, and rabbinical literature, this is one of those verses we just butcher. We just go off wrong, wringing our hands. What does it mean? Why is Jesus saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What is he doing there? How does this work in this dialogue? I mean, we, we do backflips over ourselves trying to find out what is going on here. Missing the point that I think is fairly obvious. I think Jesus is joking with the guy. I think he's playing around with the guy. I think Jesus can be humorous because he, commit, he created humor, so he's probably good at it. You know, I think he's just joking around. I think he's drawing attention to the flippant use of the word good. Kind of like we use the word awesome. You know, you see, a, you see mountains or a, something happen in the, in the st- uh, stars and it's, it's worthy of all. And you say, oh, it's awesome. And then 24 premieres tonight with Jack Bauer. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's really worthy of all. You know, it's, I think he's, he's pointing, he's flippantly showing how this use of good and so I don't think that's the main part of the aspect. Surely it, it draws attention to God. But the, the essential part of the response is, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. It's sort of interesting that he quotes the law back to him, that he quotes the commandments. It's not the first time Jesus has done that. The parable of the Good Samaritan starts with a lawyer saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by quoting the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not because, and don't mistake this, it's not because Jesus is saying you can earn or merit your way in. Rather, I think he is affirming that our horizontal reality is a part of our vertical relationship with God. That how we are with God manifests itself in how we are in our world. So he, he, he quotes these commandments. And the man says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. And then what does Jesus say? Well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Sort of seems like Jesus is piling on here a little bit, Right? It, it, it sort of reads like this man passed the commandment test. So Jesus has to give him another test. He's trying to find something this man can't do. You ever have bosses like that? You know, you've, you've gone in for your annual review. You've done a good job. You know you've done a good job. During your review, your boss has to find something. Has to find that one thing that you could do better. And they'll come up with absurd things like being a better team player or helping out other people be more successful. I mean, things that is really their job, right? You know, they'll come up with these, these things because A, they either need to justify their job or B, make sure you don't get the full 100% of your bonus, right? I mean, we've all, we've all been there. Maybe I've been there. 
maybe I'm just venting about that a little bit. But it's, it's happened where you, you, you have these bosses that seem to be piling on. And it almost seems like Jesus is doing that here, doesn't it? That the commandment test was passed, so he's adding a new commandment to him. But is he really adding something new? Is, did this man pass the commandments test? Look again at verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Are these all the commandments? Did Jesus mention all ten commandments here? Which ones are missing? Which ones aren't there? Well, coveting's not there, and we'll get to that. How about the first one is not there? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. How about the second one? You shall not make a graven image and bow down and worship them. For your God is what? It's a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. Your God is a jealous God. Is Jesus adding a new commandment? Or has he rightly perceived that in this man's heart he has violated the first commandment? That he is more interested in in the control of his wealth than in the control of God. You see, all the other commandments, while they may appear righteous, they only have their value in as they relate to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. See, what I think Jesus is doing, and I think it's a wonderful act, a beautiful act of mercy, I think Jesus has laid before this seeker this man quite clearly that he has been a sinner disobedient a transgressor of the commandment that he needs to reject the world and worship God only come follow me worship God truly come follow me This man, this seeker has come and he has said, what must I do? There's got to be something more. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has seen into his heart and has said, I will show you what you must do. You must reject. You must sell everything you have and you must come follow me. He's given him a call. He has laid before this seeker a call. A call that is unique. A call that is very unique. A call, in fact, you only find the other apostles getting. Peter it was told to you know cast down the nets and come. Levi was told to leave everything and come. Not everyone is summoned to leave everything. Zacchaeus, a rich man, you will read about that wee little man is not told to give everything away. This man receives a call that's almost reserved only for the apostles. And Jesus lays it before him and says, You want to enjoy the treasures of heaven? Come follow me. And you can feel the significance of the moment. Here it is. The moment. 
If this was your first time reading Luke, if this was your first time hearing Luke, you have not come across any time where Jesus has so adamantly and so personally given such a call and it hasn't been accepted. You haven't come across that. In fact, that is probably what you would expect. You would really expect this rich ruler, having received a call similar to the apostles, that it would go something like, something like this. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come follow me. And the man fell to his knees, praising God, selling everything he owned. He immediately followed Jesus. That's what you would expect. But that's not what happens. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. It doesn't say when he heard this, he called Jesus a blasphemer. It doesn't say when he heard this, he became angry at Jesus and wanted to stone him. When he heard this, he became very sad because he couldn't surrender his wealth. He couldn't break the chains, those gold and silver chains from his coffers. He was anchored to them. And he knew it. You can almost feel the pathos in this passage. Jesus, he looks at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's a truth. Historically, the gospel has had much more success, has borne so much more fruit on the margins of society than it ever has in the establishment. It's the truth. And I think the reason for this, the reason is that wealth Wealth, more than any other aspect of this world, more than any other false god in this world, wealth anchors you in the present and prevents you from seeing with eternal eyes. Had this man only seen with eternal eyes, had he not been anchored in the present, oh, what could have happened? You see, wealth, wealth competes with Christ more than any other part of this world. Wealth competes with him in controlling our thoughts, in controlling our motivations, in controlling our actions. I'm not out on a limb too much to say we probably spend more time thinking about money than about God. That we probably spend more time wondering, how am I going to get more money? Do I have enough money? How is my money doing? How much money do they have? How did they get that money? Why did they get that money? Oh, did you hear they lost money? It probably governs our thoughts. It competes with Christ. And for the wealthy, for the wealthy, this is extremely true. You see, the, the wealthy, those, those of us with money, we have the illusion that we control our present reality. That we control our security. We control our comfort. We control our food. We control every aspect about it. We control where we live. We have this assumption that we control it. 
don't mistake me. I am not saying wealth is a sin. I do not believe Scripture teaches that. I do not believe Scripture teaches having wealth is a sin. What I am saying is those of you with wealth, be very, very wary. Not only does there have a great obligation, but it is a constant risk to your soul. It is a constant risk to your walk with God. Because it will battle and battle and battle to demand your loyalty over that of Christ. It's the truth. And you know how you're, if you want to know how you're doing in that, if you want to know how you're doing in that battle, do you think of it as your wealth? Do you think of it as your children's wealth? Do you think of it as your grandchildren's wealth? Because while I do not think Scripture teaches wealth is a sin, I very much believe Scripture teaches that it's not your wealth. It's God's wealth. And God, in His will, has granted you to hold and be in charge of part of His great treasury for His bidding. Not for yours. He didn't give you wealth so that you may satisfy your desires. He doesn't work that way. If you get a bonus, you get a raise. What are your first thoughts? Are your first thoughts, thank God, man, this money really helps me out. Or do you say, God, what do you want with this money? What do you want me to do with any of it, with all of it? wealth it's his not yours make no mistake God does not suffer rivals he does not scoot over he does not make room he does not share position of lord of your life he won't allow wealth to be your god five days a week and he'll take the other two Wealth, if you're enjoying seasons of wealth, be very, very vigilant. But you know, wealth isn't just an issue for those who have it. Wealth is a problem for those who don't. And now we're into the sin of coveting. Those who do not enjoy wealth run the risk of ruining the joy of their Christian life because of coveting. And I'm not just talking about coveting over objects. You know, the, the, the HGTV or the, the HCTV, the home coveting network, you know, where um, you sit there and you're like, oh, look at that view and those floors. Why did they go orange in that room? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about that type of coveting, a, a nightly coveting in my house. Um, I'm talking about coveting that illusion that the rich think they have. That illusion that you can control your daily life. Coveting the desire to not have to worry if your paycheck is going to be enough to buy groceries. Coveting the desire to not have to worry if you can buy medicine for your kids or if your car breaks down, what in the world you're going to do. 
You know, coveting that desire to be able to go on a vacation, to go on a trip. Coveting that desire to put your kid in the right schools. You know, that's, that's that coveting that can happen. And as you covet, it just is a cancer to the joy of your heart. Because you no longer see God working in people's lives. You see their money working in their lives. It can also kill relationships. God in his great design has set it up so that in the church, those who have are to share with those who don't. Now, have you ever had this where God has moved upon your heart to give? has moved upon your heart to give to someone. Maybe something as simple as a meal, maybe something even grand and huge. And when you do that, you have met with resistance. They have refused and refused the gift. How dare you refuse an act of God's generosity? Those of you who don't have wealth, if God has ordained that he wants to bless you by a gift from those who have, how dare you make that difficult? You have no right to do that. And you know why you're doing it? It's really because of pride. It's why I've done it. It's because of pride, because I'm thinking I'm now somehow indebted to them, or I've somehow been shamed to them. How dare I? How dare you? See it for what it is, a glorious gift of God, and praise Him for it. It'll kill relationships if you don't. Wealth is something we must be on guard. And it's almost impossible. If you're wondering how you can not be tethered to wealth, the desire for it, if you're wondering if you can really do that, I'm going to tell you, you can't. You can't. Sorry, it's not going to happen. You can't do it on your own. On your own, you can't do it. But what is impossible with human beings is possible with God. The good news is God will change your heart. And there you'll, there you'll be. Bill, you'll be praying, and you may even be reluctantly praying, and you may, be, you may be like, Lord, I just don't think I can give up my wealth. I just don't think I can give up my desire for my wealth, but, but I want to follow you. And then it'll happen. The Holy Spirit will change your heart. I promise you it's true. It'll change, he will change your heart. There's a study coming out. You may have heard of it. It was a study comparing conservatives and liberals on um, giving. But the bulk of conservatives that they looked at were Christians. And you know what they found? Christians were substantially more giving. What's the difference? God changed hearts. My wife works in development. She's exposed to fundraising all the time. And she is humbled, humbled by how those who have so much 
are so giving. God changes hearts. We've talked a lot about wealth. And you may be thinking, yeah, there are other false gods than wealth. Um, And you're right. Jesus talked about wealth. And I'm guessing wealth is probably the one we're having the most trouble with. But you know what's fascinating? You know what's wondrous? Is that in surrendering to Christ, He promises you the treasures of heaven in this age and in eternal life. I'm not talking a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying you give me X, I'll give you X plus 2. No, I'm just talking about a matter of fact that if you are part of the family of God, your father is a generous father. You may measure it differently than you did in the world, but your father is a generous father. You can't outgive God, and you sure can't out-sacrifice him. I want you to consider, and we'll end with this. I want you to consider everything you have. All your money. All your possessions. Your hope for the inheritance of your children. Your hope for their college the obligation you feel to the money you've inherited, the obligation you feel to the money you've worked for, the house you live in, all your plans, all your wealth. And if God said to you, will you give it all away? in exchange for knowing me, what would you do? Would you be like our ruler friend? Deeply sad. Or would you fall on your knees praising God, saying, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I am. Everything I've got. Do with me as you will.